So again, I want to return to this crossroads image and what we've covered so far this morning is really kind of like the, the difficult part, you know, our default mechanisms in the face of vulnerability or dukkha. So I want to come back to how these two lists sit side by side in the Satipatthana Sutta this classroom of waking up and what can be cultivated in the face of vulnerability, that these patterns of reactivity, no matter how well practiced we are in them, doesn't mean that they have a long future. They are not part, their identities can be built upon them, but identities can be built upon also many other qualities. They are not life sentences. So what is the turning point? What is the turning point for us when we're not so much practicing the habitual or practicing the reactions that entangle us in distress, but where we begin to cultivate something different? And I would really stress this word cultivation bhavana, as it is in Pali, that is often translated as meditation. Bhavana has nuances that are important to remember. I mean, any of you who've ever grown anything in your life, from a sunflower to a child, knows that you, for anything to grow, it needs to be cultivated. It needs to be brought into being. And bhavana means to bring into being, to bring into being. This is a very conscious, intentional approach to what we usually refer to as meditation. If you sit down on your cushion, do you ask yourself the question, what is being cultivated in this sitting? If you go into your walking path, do you ask yourself, what is being cultivated in this walking? being aware that we are always practicing something. There's never a moment in our day when we are not practicing something. And if we're not intentionally cultivating, it's quite possible we will be practicing dukkha generators. You know, that we will be practicing habit patterns. So we come into this Second list, this is called the bojangas, or the limbs of awakening. The Buddha refers to these as the treasures within us. So this is not, this list doesn't describe something that is not already seeded in our consciousness. This is already seeded in our hearts and our minds. And our invitation is to cultivate those seeds. Now, not surprisingly, the list of the bojangas or the limbs of awakening begins with this word sati. And I use the Pali quite deliberately because I feel that sometimes when we try to get one English word to translate some of these Pali terms, we don't actually do the term justice. So usually this is translated as mindfulness, which is some of you may know that the early translators of the text 
really struggled to find an English word for this, this word sati. So mindfulness was borrowed from the Gospels. And of course, it's been so naturalized into our world that it's become almost cliched, you know. Just be mindful, you know, just be mindful. We do mindful coloring, we do mindful surfing, we do mindful dog walking, you know, we do mindful cooking, we do mindful everything. And yet we can use the word so easily without understanding its nuances. And it's important for us to know those nuances. And why do I say that? Because mindfulness has so many different modes of expression or modes of cultivation, so many qualities woven within it that in different situations in our life, we may actually benefit from drawing upon one of those nuances rather than another. Are we drawing upon the element of mindfulness which is about spaciousness? Are we drawing upon the element of mindfulness which is about collectedness? Are we drawing upon the element of mindfulness which is about protection? Which is, are we drawing upon the element of mindfulness which is about discernment or investigation? So all of this is built into this one word, sati. And I want to just break down, you know, four of the, actually five of the primary functions of sati, or five of the primary dimensions of mindfulness. One of them, the first of these is simple knowing. I know what is happening. It's developing a kind of literacy inwardly of knowing what is happening, a thought is happening, a sensation, a sound, a mood. I know what is happening. The simple knowing, it sounds simple, but actually what is happening in this cultivation, it is a stepping about out of the narrative of what is going on. It's stepping out of our interpretations, our associations, our stories, our memories. It's a very present moment, simple knowing. Something very important happens in developing this simple knowing is that we step out of the eye of the storm. We step out of the identification. We step out of the narratives. And it's almost the point where we're establishing a much clearer conversation almost with what is going on, we stepped out of the identification. Ah, the body. Ah, a sound. Ah, a thought. Without it picking up or generating all of the narrative around it. So this is a calming element of mindfulness in itself. It's calming some of the agitations. If you look in the Satipatthana Sutta, one of the first instructions about cultivating mindfulness is to breathe in, calming the formations, and breathe out, calming the formations. And the formations are the patterns of agitation. The patterns of agitation in body and in mind. So this simple knowing is the first dimension of sati. The second dimension of sati is protective awareness. This is not about defensive awareness, but about protective awareness. And the image that is used in, in this term is be learning to be a wise gatekeeper. 
of your own heart and mind. Learning what it means to be a wise gatekeeper. So the image that is used is of a, a gatekeeper standing at the gates of a city and welcoming in all of the visitors who mean to serve the city and its inhabitants well and acknowledging, acknowledging those visitors to the city who would undermine the well-being of the city and its inhabitants, acknowledging them, knowing them, but not entertaining them and not, not inviting them in. This is a discerning element of mindfulness, um, knowing what leads to distress, knowing what leads to the end of distress, knowing what leads to the deepening of insight, knowing what leads to the deepening of confusion, knowing what takes us away from freedom, knowing what brings us closer to a sense of freedom. And this wise gatekeeper, this element of protective awareness is so deeply important. Think about it in your experience. How many repeat visitors you have, you know, in terms of old resentments, you know, old patterns of jealousy, you know, old patterns, old grudges, you know, ruminations, circles of which you've been around a million times, you know, obsessions you've entertained a thousand times, things that you know well, but you know it, there's such a habit, they have such a magnetic draw to come once more to the gates of the city. This element of protective awareness involves clear comprehension. We actually really need to know what is going on. Without clear comprehension, this is just putting away. And it's not, it's not protective awareness anymore, it's defensive awareness. But we may sense in some of those cycles of repetition that actually all the clear comprehension we could possibly have is there. Um, everything we could possibly understand is being understood. And now this is repetition and habit. And protective awareness is actually saying, I know you. I know you, and yet I don't need to entertain you. I don't need to entertain you. And how do we entertain? Through thinking, through dwelling, through narrative, through repetition. We entertain that which does not serve us well. So there's an element here of protective awareness of being a good gatekeeper. It's being a good gatekeeper. And for those of you who are involved in contemporary mindfulness applications, this is a complete, it seems like the complete opposite of the guest house poem. Which, you know, just come on in, you know. Well, actually, maybe everything doesn't need to come on in. Because in actually not actually making that, that kind of, in not, in not making that effort to stop feeding, those unwelcome guests are just going to grow and return. Um, I came across a quote the other day that would apply to this. It said that, you know, human beings are the only animal whose desires grow when they are fed. And we might say that human beings have a remarkable capacity to grow what is unhelpful to them. You know, through obsession, through dwelling, through proliferation, through storytelling. So the gatekeeper stands at the gates of the city and says, I know you, I know you, but I don't actually need to serve you a five-course meal. It's a, it's a shift, but this protective awareness is, 
It's just so important. It's so important, I think, for, for calming the mind, for stilling inwardly, for stepping out of patterns of agitation. Um, the third of the domains of mindfulness is uh, investigative awareness. To probe beneath the surface of things. To probe beneath our stories, our assumptions, our conclusions, our self-views. Our views about who we are, our views about who another person is. The investigative awareness that is actually diving underneath the concepts to know experientially and in a present moment framework what is actually going on here. What is actually going on here? And the image that is used here is the image of a, a good surgeon or a good doctor. That if someone goes to a good doctor or a good surgeon with an arrow embedded in their arm, a good surgeon is not immediately going to bring out their hacksaw and chop off the arm. A good surgeon is going to probe the wound so they can ascertain the nature of the wound, so that they can offer a diagnosis, so that they can offer a course of treatment, and so that they can offer a prognosis. So it is actually that kind of almost ability to palpate experience with mindfulness, to actually dive beneath the assumptions or the, the kind of yeah, more superficial knowing, and to investigate something fully. Take your self-view of the moment, your I am of the moment, and we all have them, by the way. So I don't think anybody in this room is excluded. Take your I am of the moment, your self-view of the moment. You know, have you even considered it? How would you describe yourself? Yeah. Who would you describe yourself to be? Do you describe yourself by a type? Or do you describe yourself by something that you identify with in terms of a pattern or an emotional tone? or um, a, a, yeah, a repeated formation of agitation. How do you define yourself? And what would it be like to probe beneath that definition? How do you know that? How do you understand that? So investigative awareness. The fourth of these is our capacity to reframe perception. It's one of the jobs of mindfulness is to reframe perception and to reframe cognition. You walk down the street, you see, or you come here and you see someone you haven't seen in five years, you know, and your eyes set upon them. Now, last time you saw that person, maybe you had such an amazing time with them, you know, really good connection, and they don't remember you. And you feel, well, you know, they were such a lovely person. Now, look at them, they're so unmindful, they don't even remember me. You know, they're so deluded, you know. Or you look at, you see someone you had met five years ago here or somewhere else, and, you know, you remember they were the person who never turned off their phone. You know, 
They were the person who just took up all the space. You know, there they are again. There's that really, really obnoxious person. Our, our world is filled with perceptions, you know, and some of them obviously very benign. Some of them are just very navigational, quite helpful and necessary in life. To know your address, you know, to, to, to know the difference between a speeding bus and a, and a donkey, you know, it's really helpful to have those navigational perceptions. Most of our perceptions do not come to the party alone. Most of our perceptions are loaded with both emotional history and emotional memory, which is why it is so difficult for us to see something anew. Why it's so difficult for us to see ourselves anew. And this, this kind of loaded perception is actually what takes, in many ways, the, the mystery and the awe out of life because we live so easily and find comfort in living in a world where we can say, I know you, I know you, or I know this, or I know something else. And very often that emotional history, when we, when we repeat that, those perceptions, we bring the past into the present which is why we keep experiencing, you know, when, when I see that person who I think of being as obnoxious, it's not just that I have the perception of them, I have the same emotional reactivity to them, you know, of feeling annoyed and irritated. So we keep bringing the, the past into the present, not just the perception, but repeating the emotional association with that perception. You know, I've had a bad experience in my childhood with heights, you know, so I'm standing on the edge of a cliff, you know, and all I see is danger. All I see is danger. And being mindful of how, you know, in a way this kind of makes life easier, doesn't it? Because we, we don't have to sort of reflect too much or investigate too much um, when we live in that world of I know. But that reframing is something so, so important if we're to bring again a sense of awe and mystery into life. You see it in small children, don't you? You know, when perception is not loaded, you know, how a small child, they can revisit the same sand pit a hundred times, you know, or the same load of gravel a hundred times, and it's still, wow! You know, it's still new. It's still new. So reframing perception. The other aspect of mindfulness, which is spoken about somewhat less in the early texts, is um, rebalancing negative attentional bias. When I taught at Exeter University, um, I taught in a room where there was a coffee stain on the carpet, and you know students would come in to lie down on the floor to do their body scans, etc., um, and. So many people just had a thing about this coffee stain, I have to tell you, you know that. Like, why doesn't this university take better care of its rooms, you know, and I don't want to lie down anywhere near that coffee stain, you know, and how do I know the rest of the carpet's not filthy? 99% of the carpet was perfectly clean. But you walk into the room, you see the coffee stain, you know, you see the coffee stain. How often in ourselves, you know, that you, you know how much we will notice what in our body is hurting, 
or uncomfortable, how we don't actually see what is well, you know, what is quite easeful in this moment. How we can walk into this room, you know, and find what is, you know, those pretty weird frames on the wall. I mean, what they're all about, you know, we don't actually see the loveliness of the wooden floor or the space. How our attention is so easily drawn to what we deem to be imperfect and we miss so much in life. And this becomes, of course, a huge pattern. There's many ways that mindfulness in, endeavors to rebalance that negative attentional bias through the cultivation of the lovely, the cultivation of appreciation, of sensitivity, of spaciousness, of gratitude, of metta, making those little adjustments inwardly. And, you know, this has been, this is quite crucial in our lives. It's quite crucial in our lives, especially when we've been in or are in the midst of, you know, a world that just feels, you know, died with, with the difficult and the horrendous. Actually, we also need to know what is well, what is easeful, what is lovely. We cannot ever make ourselves sensitive or joyful, but we can certainly make room for sensitivity and joyfulness. So would you just think and bring in some of the other nuances of sati or mindfulness that I think are just so helpful for us to consider. And one of the really, you know, really important ones is the image of someone standing on an elevated watchtower or an elevated, you know, a high hill and having a kind of panoramic view of the world, the landscape around them without seizing upon any details, without preferencing any aspects of that, that landscape. So you get a sense of this is the aspect of mindfulness, which is about, it's about spaciousness. It's, it's about really that inclusivity. It's about not seizing upon details. And try and think of a time in your life or a mood when that aspect of sati would actually really be helpful to cultivate. Irritation. Anger. Yeah. Anything that contracts us. Anything that contracts us. You know, maybe this is the encouragement. I can, ah, here's possible. I can actually cultivate that sense of spaciousness. You know, it's almost like going outside and looking at the tree and instead of focusing on the leaves to look at the space around the tree. And to look at the space around the tree. So this image of the gatekeeper is one that's deeply important. The image of a parent caring for their sick and ailing child. This is one of the images that's used of sati, this qualitative aspect of kindness, of compassion, of tenderness, of showing up for, for suffering and the difficult without, without fearfulness. Another aspect is what I spoke about, about the, guy, the gatekeeper. Another aspect is the, the one of the surgeon. Another aspect of uh, image of sati is of someone walking through a crowded marketplace, carrying a bowl of oil on their head, followed by someone with a, a sharp knife. And if they spill a drop of the oil, 
they're going to get their head removed. It's rather stark. Um, but it's what it's pointing to is the importance of being embodied. This level of care that's needed to be embodied to move through this world in an intentional and conscious way so as not to get lost. Another of the images that is used is of someone driving a chariot, we could call it a car, driving a chariot to a crowded marketplace and being needed so careful, needing to do that so carefully so as not, not to knock people down on their way. And this actually speaks to this element of sati, which is not just about caring for oneself, but actually about the kind of footprint that we're leaving on the world, how we are affecting others around us. Another of the images associated with sati is of a, a farmer plowing their field. And in the old days in India, you know, the plow would be attached to a pair of oxen and the farmer would stand on the plow and knowing just the right amount of weight to put on the plow so, to make it in a, usable for growing seeds. Too much and the seeds will be swallowed. Too little, the seeds won't grow. And this really speaks to this element of sati, which is really about the kind of effort that we bring. You know, too much overdoing, you know, we won't thrive. Too little effort, we also won't thrive. There's about a hundred of these images, by the way. I'm just <laughs> trying to, to come through some of the... Anyway, I think that's enough of them for now. But I hope you get a sense that sati is not one-dimensional. Hmm? Sati is so nuanced. And, you know, to, to really consider what dimension of sati is really most helpful right now. Is it more protective? Is it more investigative? You know, is it more kind and tender? Is it more spacious? You know, what aspect of sati is helpful for us right now? And this sati, like in most Buddhist lists, is always the embarkation point of change. It's always the beginning of beginning to walk a pathway where something can be transformed. That how difficult it is for anything at all to change without awareness, without, without mindfulness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.